listening to an episode of Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. This week, we go to Kiowa Island to watch the 2021 PGA Championship. Kiowa Island is located between Charleston and Hilton Head, right on the ocean. Ten miles of beaches, maritime forests, sand dunes, white-tailed deer, alligators, sea turtles, and seabirds. It's absolutely a beautiful destination. If you happen to like golf, and I'm guessing you might, they have five championship public resort courses and two private courses, the Cacique and the River Course. Kiowa is a little less than an hour drive from downtown Charleston. If you know the back roads, you tend to open your car windows and drive down these live oak-covered roads. One of my favorite day trips from Charleston. And when I typically go there, I don't go for a skinny minute. I drive down, I enjoy the drive down the oak-covered roads. And when I get there, I typically go to play golf. And the five courses they have there are magnificent. And then I tend to stay maybe for a drink or so and just enjoy the area because there's nothing like Kiowa Island. Nothing. Kiowa song road will rest in my bones in a big wooden still house. Feel like home. In most golf markets, they have some kind of discount or coupon book where locals can get on some of the courses at a discounted rate. Here in Charleston, there is the Charleston Tea Time book, which basically goes on sale sometime in November for one hour, and they sell out of all of their books. Now, the books cost around $175, and what that does is that allows you to get onto 22 different courses, of which five are the Kiowa courses, and just pay the cart fees. So if you're going to play the Ocean course which typically costs around $450. After buying the coupon book, it only costs $100. So most people that are buying the coupon book are going there to play the ocean course. And everything after that is just gravy. Because a bunch of my buddies all go in and get the coupon book, we tend to go down and play the ocean course at least once a year. The ocean course is 7,800 yards long. It is over a seven-mile walk. And when you go there, typically if you're going to play before noon, you're going to go and you're going to walk with caddies. And there is not a tree, particularly on the back night, to shade you. So if you go on a hot day, it is murder walking seven miles. Because a lot of your walks, if you're not on the fairway, which a lot of us aren't all the time, you're walking in sand dunes. So if you don't want to carry your clubs, and you don't need a caddy, they'll let you go on the course and walk if you'd like to and carry your clubs. But if you don't carry your clubs, you have to take a caddy. And if you take a cart, you have to take a four caddy. And if you take a cart, you can't drive on the fairways. So you are driving in the dunes in the transition areas. There are no cart paths. And so it, sometimes it's a longer walk if you take a cart. But here's the thing. Not everybody's built for walking. 
So if you can't walk that far, you take a cart. There's just some inconveniences in doing it, but you still get to play the ocean course. And the ocean course is one of a kind. Kiowa song road will rest in my bones in a big wooden still house. The ocean course is another one of those Pete Dye courses. And I've had the opportunity to play a bunch of Pete Dye courses. Not well, but I've played them. Like I've played the Brickyard Crossing in Indianapolis where six of the holes are inside the Indianapolis 500 Speedway. And I was actually there for time trials. There's no other experience when you're on a tee box and there is an Indy car racing maybe 20 feet from you on the other side of the wall. You hear it coming almost a half a mile away. And it's hard to swing a golf club when that car goes by you. But I've also played some of his courses, Mission Hills in Carmel Valley in California, Paiute in Las Vegas in Desert Pines, the Harbortown course in South Carolina, where they play another PGA event. And the first course I ever played of his was in Kings Mill, Virginia, where they used to have a PGA event. Now there's an LPGA event played there. And two of his most pristine courses in Kohler, Wisconsin, Black Wolf Run and Whistling Straits, both tournament courses. So Pete Dye's courses are difficult. You typically know them when you come up to the course, when you get to either greens or water areas protected by railroad ties. That's his thing. He also makes it a little challenging throughout the rest of the course. So needless to say, I've not played my best rounds of golf on Pete Dye courses, including the ocean course. This week, we had the best players in the world come to town to Charleston, stay in Kiowa, and play the ocean course. I had planned to go one day, just Saturday, just to watch the pros hit the ball, see how they manage the course, because where they hit from is entirely different where most other people play from. I mean, they're playing from 7,800 yards. <gasps> it's so big. I always like going to a major tournament on Saturdays because that's what the pros call moving day. For those that make the cut, it's the day that the pros have felt out the course, have a pretty good sense of how to manage the course, and try and go as low as they can on Saturday to position themselves for the later rounds on Sunday and position themselves to score and win. So Saturday to me has always been the most exciting day. I had a bunch of friends that were going Monday through Wednesday during the practice rounds. I mean, they're clearly better days to interact with the players, more casual, less serious, and far cheaper. Monday through Wednesday is social media days. Pics of my friends, selfies with pros, stories of how nice the players were to them. You know, guys like Jordan Spieth, Hendrick Stenson, Ian Poulter, Bubba Watson, Bryson DeChambeau. And I heard so many stories about Bryson on the range. Now, they, when you first walk in, and walk, go to the right once you enter, you could see where their range, they have the range set up. And the range is set up to around 350 yards. And behind that, 
they had set up some big tents. And Bryson, when he was starting to hit, he was hitting towards the end of the range on every shot. And then patrons started challenging him to hit the tent on the other side. That's like a 370, 400-yard shot. And he's talking to people, and they're challenging him, and he is hitting the tent. One after the next, after the next. And then what he'd do is he'd turn around, come back, sign his glove, and give it to the guy who challenged him to do it. So he loves this. This is made for him. I mean, going to the range and entertaining the public to have them see what he has now developed into, which I still think is the Hulk, uh, is fantastic for him. And it's great for the crowds. And I would tell you that after the practice rounds and when you got into the tournament, until Phil started taking the lead, he was by far the favorite person to follow because you just wanted to see him crack a drive. What they want, Hulk smash. what they need, Hulk smash. I will never lose, I'm a beast. If you want it, as all my friends were going to practice rounds and posting it on social media, I was getting excited for Saturday. I mean, I couldn't wait to get out there and, you know, give you my take on what I saw on the other side of the ropes. So Thursday rolls around and I go over to Charleston National to go and play some golf. I figured I'd play some golf, I'd record Thursday's round and I'd come back and watch it. And as I get up to the first tee, I go out as a single player and I got paired up with three other guys, three senior players that wanted to play the forward tees. And I tend to play where everybody else plays from. And so I said, yeah, I'll come up and play. And I just got this feeling it was going to be one of these dead days. You ever get matched up with people and they just don't want to talk about anything and nor do they want to talk about golf. They just want to play their game, go on to the next hole, be quiet. And that's fine in a tournament situation. But when you're playing with people you've never played with before, it's kind of nice to chat it up and see what you have in common. So I, this was going to be a dead round and that's fine. I'll, I'll just practice my game. And as I get up to the first tee box, there are people in the fairway in front of us, people on the green. So it's a little slow start. My phone rings. It's a friend of mine, Shelley's who used to do all of these trade promotions, events in the Charleston area and happens to know everybody in the market, all the restaurant owners, all the bar owners. I mean, this gal knows a lot of people and she's got a great personality. Just very bright girl. She calls me and she goes, Hey Rich, I've got two tickets to go to the PGA today. And I'm like, Hey Shelly, I can't, I'm on the, I'm at the, I'm at the first tee box. And she goes, Oh, you're already at the tournament. I'm like, no, I'm at Charleston national. I'm playing. She goes, well, I don't mean to bother you. I go, Hey, I answered the phone. Great to hear from you. Hey, you know, we start talking. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't. So the guys just start getting ready to tee off and I hang up the phone and somebody says something. I don't know, but it was like a nasty comment about the people in front of us, like a negative Nelly. And I'm like, oh no, I don't want to be caught all day with people that just want to complain about the round of golf and how slow it is or what somebody in front of them is doing. I get it. It's the week of the PGA Championship in Charleston and every golf course was packed with tee times from seven in the morning till five at night, every golf course. 
So we were getting, and a lot of courses were getting two to 300 players a day. So it was going to be slow. Meanwhile, this guy's complaining, complaining. Before he hits his first shot, I walk off the first tee box. I pick up my phone. I call Shelly back and I'm like, hey, Shelly, is the offer still good? She's like, of course it's good. I go, send me the tickets because everything at the PGA this year was tick- it was e-tickets. So everything was on your phone, which made it really easy to transfer tickets. So I hang up from her, walk up to the tee box. They still haven't hit and they're complaining. And I'm like, hey, guys, have a great round. I just got a call. I'm going to the PGA Championship. They're like, good life. Have a good time. I hear it's really slow out there. I hear it's you know even more negative shit. And I'm like, see you guys. Get my car. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. By 1 o'clock, I'm down in Kiowa on the buses at the front gate walking into the PGA Championship. First day of the round. I am thrilled to be there. The first day of any major golf tournament is always interesting to me. There's always a few guys that are rabbits. They're off to a fast start. They're prepared. They're psyched up. They believe they can compete. By day two or three, the rabbits tend to lose their momentum that propelled them to the top of the leaderboard in the first few days. I mean, number one, they start making mistakes. They fade. They also are doing interviews with a lot of the announcers when they get done, and that tends to get in their heads if they've never been there before. And if you're leading the tournament, at the end of the day, you get to speak to Amanda Balionis. And if you've never watched her, I think she's top of her game as an announcer. She's good at her job. She's positive. She asks questions that elicits more than a yes or no answer. I mean, she studied journalism at Hofstra University in Long Island, and I'm surprised she doesn't talk like, hey, how you guys doing? But she doesn't. And when you ever watch her do an interview, watch her hands when she talks. It's like she's holding two balls in her hands when she's talking to people. Now, get your mind out of the gutter. They're like baseballs, lacrosse balls. It's like she's throwing her energy to the person that she's interviewing so that she can get the energy back. I think she's great. So, Amanda, if you're listening to this, I'll interview you any day. Are you sure about that? I think the media plays a huge role in the life of winning athletes. Not only do they need to focus on their game prep and performance, they have to answer media questions. And unless you're schooled at answering media questions, as a lot of top athletes are, you tend to get back in your head. They're asking you questions about what you're thinking about. And you can't say nothing. So you'll kind of tell them what's going on in your head or how you're looking at the course. Meanwhile, you're getting back in your head. And when you get out to play, you got to get out of your head. You can't be in your head. You have to be focused on whatever your swing thought is or whatever your target is. And that's all you think about. You can't think about what you were thinking about. It doesn't work. Which brings me to my observation on the course. I like watching pro golfers get ready for a shot. Each player has their own signature pre-shot routine. I've always been a big fan of Fred Couples and his swing and his tempo. 
I mean, he takes it back so far. His shoulders turn so far and it looks effortless, but he is swinging that club fast. It just looks effortless. But when he does his pre-shot routine and he's going to walk up to the ball, he always does this thing with his left shoulder and he pulls his shirt like off his left shoulder for a second before he goes up and hits it. I don't know what that does. It was a habit that he probably developed when he was in Seattle, but it stayed with him his whole career. He still does it now. If you watch Bryce and DeChambeau, when he's getting up with his driver, he does these long swings with his driver as far away from his body as he can, almost like a baseball swing, except the plane of his body is a little tilted. Then he gets up to the ball, waggles, lifts his club off the ground a few times, almost like hitting the ground before he takes it back and just blasts it. Brandon Grace can be chatting it up with his fellow competitors moments before he's going to hit the shot. But when he goes to hit the shot, it's like something changes. He walks up, puts his ball on the ground, and then goes into a trance before he sets up, looks at his target, and hits. And watching Phil this week was a treat. He goes into this quick meditation before every swing and every putt. If he wasn't wearing his fashionable sunglasses, which kind of hide his eyes, I'd imagine that he almost closes his eyes like a shark moments before an attack to visualize his shot. I watched him on the 10th green on Thursday before he sunk one of his first birdie putts that turned his game around. He gets up to the putt, it's around five or six feet, and he looks at it, he's patting down on the ground, and before he's ready to putt, he stands to his side, and he goes into this trance. Seconds, it seemed like minutes. And then he bends down, bends his knees a little bit, looks at the hole a few times, now that he's out of his trance, and makes the putt, commits to his putt. He happened to make it made the birdie putt, the crowd went crazy, and he goes on to 11, makes another birdie, and this was kind of the start of him turning his round around. It was really exciting. But his pre-shot routine is the same on almost every shot. Before I get back to talking about Phil and father time, I wanted to talk about the venue and the fans. The Professional Golf Association runs and manages the event, and it's remarkable how they make a profit. They solicit the local market in Charleston for volunteers to work the event for free, and all the volunteers are required to buy and wear uniforms, khaki pants, PGA logo shirts, and hats. I mean, it's over $200 worth of merch, and they've got to have a 1,000 people working there. So, nice profit center, PGA. Then they've got their ticket sales and their hospitality suites. I mean, that is cha-ching. That's a big number. And then certainly merch and food and bev, also cha-ching. Bottled water, $6. A beer, $16. I mean, it's hard to get wasted at the PGA Championship. First of all, the cost will eat you up. And second of all, most of the beer they're serving is light beer. So they're certainly trying to control the crowd when they do that. And cha-ching, 
$16 for a can of beer. And I think all of that is chump change compared to the deal that the PGA Tour met made with CBS Sports, NBC Sports, and ESPN for nine years. I mean, I think that was a significant contract, and I think that's where a lot of the revenue comes from. So I think it's going to take a lot of $16 beers to make up for that. And my guess is before they price all their food and beverage, they look at all sports venues and just compare to what pe- what do people pay when they go to football, basketball, baseball games. I think the cost of food and the cost of entertainment is just continually rising. My impression is that the PGA of America has their act together when it comes to preparing for the event and handling all the logistics of the event. I mean, it looked to me like it was run by the U.S. Armed Forces. Getting out to Johns Island and Kiowa was easy. Parking was free. It was easy. Transportation from the parking area using gray line buses was easy. They lined them up 20 deep. And as people were walking up after parking, they get on a bus, fill the bus, move it. Next bus, move it. And then the buses just follow each other out to the venue. It's like a half hour drive from this middle area of Kiowa all the way out to the beaches where the course is. I mean, the ocean course is not the easiest to get to, but they made it easy for patrons. And maybe it's because it was only, it was limited capacity to 10,000 this year, but they handled it extremely well. Now, as a patron, when you get out to the course, walking this course is not the easiest event to walk. Basically, you're walking on sand dunes. If you get lucky, you might be some grassy area or crushed rock in the sand. But for the most part, you're walking on sand dunes. And when you're walking seven miles to follow the players and sand dunes, number one, it's hot. Number two, it's tough on your body. So because of that, a lot of patrons will come there and bring chairs and get to a hole and plop the chairs down to watch. Now, If you are fortunate enough to be part of a corporate sponsorship or invited to one of the corporate booths, they have multiple corporate tents around each hole, a lot by the greens, some by the driving areas. So that certainly made it easier for people that were part of that to watch the event because it's shaded, because you can get drinks right there, because you could watch TV monitors behind you and see what's going on around the course. But I would say most of the people that were out there were probably not in corporate sponsored tents. So they're walking the course. If the PGA of America had a suggestion box on how to make the Kiowa events even better, and they're going to continue to have them out there because it is a wonderful championship golf course. I would say two things. Number one, is I would have stands for non-corporate sponsorship, just for general admission. Most every other golfing event I've been to, there were stands for the general public, and it's first come, first serve. And so a lot of patrons who don't want to walk, particularly at Kiowa because of the sand dunes, would probably find stands like that. But that would mean 
they'd have to give up some corporate revenue because they've put all the stands around the greens and had corporate sponsorships. But I would still find a few of them on some keyholes and make it open to the public. The other thing I would do is I'd have more food and drink stations along the course so that people don't have to go between the ninth green and the 10th green to find a, you know, a place for food and drink. So PGA of America, if you're looking for advice or any suggestions, that was my advice and it was free. So that's probably what it was worth. Nothing. Let me talk about golf fans at this point. Because I had the opportunity to walk the course and sit at a few holes. So I'm in the mix. I'm in the mix with the fans. And the one question I have is, at what point in your life are you told it's okay to yell shit at athletes? When did you think it was okay to give them advice and interrupt their flow? I mean, I've been a football games, baseball, hockey, basketball, soccer, and some fans just think it's really important to yell shit at the athletes. And I don't get it. Now, when somebody does something great, you want to yell something. You know, you want to give them your love and you want to give them your support. And I think they eat that up. And sometimes when you really hate the opposing team, you want to say something. But you don't want to say it in the middle of them trying to perform what they do. Now, I say that And all you have to do is see everybody behind any basket in any NBA game or a college game. And if you're the opposing uh, fans, you're going to do all kinds of shit to make them miss their free throw. So I get it, but I don't get it. And here's why. When I went to school, I played a sport. And because I played a sport, I had no spring break. Every spring, I was doing double sessions for lacrosse training while all my buddies, and this is even back in high school, while all my buddies were going on some kind of spring break or some place to, to recreate, get drunk, judge, or be part of a wet t-shirt contest, I'm doing double sessions, pulling muscles, doing everything I can to try and improve myself. So when the season came, I'd just be better. And now when a lot of Division One athletes are playing whatever sport they're playing, it's year-round. They don't get a chance to recreate and just get crazy as drunk. So these guys are working on their profession. And so when they become professional athletes, the people in the stands are the same people that were going to spring break. And it's like a continuation of spring break. Meanwhile, these athletes have been dedicating their lives to their sport. And now we get to golf. These kids, for the most part, were not born with a silver spoon in their mouth. So a lot of these kids have been competing since they're a young age and their parents have been driving them to all these tournaments. And then as these players finally get to be pro, yeah, they have sponsorships, which helps them a lot, but not everybody does. So these guys are grinding it out every Thursday and Friday in a tournament to try and make the weekend. And now they have to face fans sitting outside the ropes yelling shit at them. It makes no fucking sense to me. None. I've had the opportunity to go to professional golf tournaments for over 30 years. 
I had relatives that lived in Kings Mill, Virginia, where Anheuser-Busch owned and operated a brewery, a theme park, and several golf courses. And one of them was the River Course, where Curtis Strange used to live and be the resident touring pro. They hosted a PGA event on the famous River Course, where they also had a signature par 3 17th hole by the James River. It was the first time I had ever seen a professional golfer hit a ball. I mean, holy shit. They seemed to hit the ball so straight and far with what looked like very little effort. And all the years that I attended the Michelob Championship, and I think it's now a stop on the LPGA uh, tour sponsored by Pure Silk. In all the years, I never heard spectators yell any profanities at the golfers. I think of the biggest problem that a lot of the golfers had years ago, like 20 years ago, was people would bring cameras um, on the other side of the ropes, and when they took pictures, it would click. And so the players and their caddies had to tell people to put their cameras down and no photos. And I think that's now, to this day, when you go to the Masters, you can't even bring a phone in there. Now, fast forward to 2021, and I just must have missed a memo that made it cool to yell shit at players. So Thursday, I'm at the PGA, and I'm behind the 17th tee box. The 17th hole is 214 yards downhill over water. When you stand back there, all you can see in the distance is this little green with a flag with giant bunkers to the left and water to the right. So it takes tremendous amount of focus for golfers to hit the greens, let alone trying to hit it stiff to the flag. When I'm up there, Brandon Grace has his pre-shot routine that I already talked about. He tees the ball up. He stands behind the target. He does a few waggles, a few swings, and he goes into a trance, meditation and visualization. Then he gets up to the ball looks at the target one more time, and swings. So as he's doing this, in the middle of his pre-shot routine, he's done his meditation, he's looked at it, he's ready to take his club back, and somebody yells, let's go, Brandon. What the fuck? Like that's going to help him swing the club. I mean, Brandon had to pull away and stare at the guy, and even in Brandon's caddy, and caddies now have become like the bouncers of the PGA. They're the ones who have to tell people to shut up, move, what, you know, whatever they have to do to tell people to stop distracting their golfer. That's what they do. But Brandon was kind of cool. I mean, he stepped away, he looked over at the person, the caddy said something, and he went right back into his pre-shot routine. And could you remember all those times that Tiger was in the middle of a swing and somebody did something and Tiger in the middle of his swing and his swing is like 150 miles an hour was able to stop it and just stand back and move back. Most golfers can't do that and they finish with their swings and typically it's not a good result. Then on Saturday, Phil's on the 10th green and Now, on Saturday, he's leading the tournament, and he's starting to do really well. And I've already told you what his pre-shot routine is. Again, he gets up to make a putt, and he's going through his trance and his meditation. And somebody in the middle of it, when he's going up to the ball, is like, let's go, Phil. 
It's like, what the heck? I mean, the gal- even the gallery shushed that guy. I think it's great to show support as players are transitioning from shot to shot or after they make an incredible shot. But in the middle of their pre-shot routine, fuck no, shut the fuck up. And when did people in the gallery start giving players rules advice? In professional golf, players can only solicit advice from their caddies or ask a rules official. That's it. They can't ask anybody from the gallery. They can't ask other players. That's just the rules of golf. Now, they can't solicit advice from anybody, but can they be informed by the general public? Sure they can. But who wants to listen to Joe Schmo tell you about the rules and how they apply to your situation? So let me give you a case in point. Brad Merrick from Northern California, he's the guy that has the most oddest stretching routine on the range. So he gets up to 17 and we are sitting right on the side of the bunkers looking at the 17 green. He hits a shot so far left, it landed between the 10th green and the 17th green behind our heads. And the ball lands in this hard packed sand. Now the look on his face when he walks up to his ball was one of like, holy shit, how am I going to hit this? I mean, he was 20 feet above the 17th green, which was below his feet. He had two deep bunkers between him and the green. And on the other side of the green was the lake. So now he goes to hit his ball. And some patrons start yelling to him, hey, you could move your ball. Hey, you could do this. Hey, you could do it. They're starting to yell advice to him. Number one, no, he can't move his ball. Number two, who the hell made you the rules official? And number three, shut the fuck up and get out of the way. I mean, Brad looks so nervous. I mean, without this ass clown giving him any disinformation, he was nervous enough. So Brad gets up to hit his shot and he catches all of it. And after he hits it, you know, it sounded clinky. And then Brad yells, no, no. First time I've ever heard a pro do that after he hit a shot. But I guess they do it all the time. The ball flies over the green into the lake, like 45, 50 yards. Now to make matters worse. Another ass clown tells him that you could drop it in front of the green. More misinformation. So number one, no, you can't. Brad has to drop his ball down in that shitty lie area after he hit that one over into the pond because there's no play. He can't go any closer to the green. And so the only place he could go is where he already hit his ball. Number two, who made this guy the Roods official? Number three, shut the fuck up and get out of the way. So Brad drops his second ball. He looks nervous as hell. You could tell he's kind of shaking. You could look at his eyes and just kind of see his eyes are just, you know, looking all over the place. He's not settled. He hits his second shot up in the air, hits the backside of the green. It's rolling. It's rolling. You could hear the fans going, oh, no, no. Goes into the water again. This time, nobody said a fucking word. It was silent. 
other than a few, oh, like that from the fans. Brad drops his third ball in the same place. This time he managed to hit it on the green, but pretty far from the pin, and ends up two-putting for an eight. He lost five strokes on one hole. Now this guy is a PGA teacher. He's not a touring pro. And it's so hard for them to compete with these touring pros. When he finished his first round on Thursday, he was only one over par. When he finished his second round on Friday, he was only a cumulative two over par. He's kind of still in it. And round three, as he comes into 17, he's only three over par. This guy is playing out of his shoes. But bam. 17 hits him. He's now eight over par. That just crushed him. He finished 78th in a field of 81 over the weekend. So as a patron, do you really think Brad wants to hear advice from you? Hell no. Shut up and just be quiet and let the golfers do what they do best. Another situation I witnessed around 22 years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the 1999 Ryder Cup at the Country Club in Boston. One day, some American fans were yelling something to this player in Britain. The guy's name was Colin Montgomery. He was a really good player. He was a big guy, and he tended to have a pretty good sense of humor. But this guy yelled something, and Colin stopped looked up in the stands and yelled for an official to kick that guy out. I mean, nowadays, the caddies are the bouncers. Well, they couldn't find the guy because no guy was going to raise his hand. It was probably a bunch of Americans that were trying to screw him up, and nobody was going to rat on their American friend. And so Monty goes back, and he makes this incredible putt. And when he's done, he just yells at the Americans, and he yells in the direction of where that guy was. And the Europeans loved it. I mean, they must have olayed for five minutes after that. I am a tremendous golf fan and a real pro golfer enthusiast. When I go to professional events, I'll stand at the practice area for hours just admiring their swings and try and pick up something about their tempo, their ball flighting, something that I could take back with me and try and, and, you know, and achieve. When players make incredible shots, I'll yell something out. I even I might even yell, let's go, you know, when they're walking between shots, you know, particularly after a good shot. But as much as I might want an opposing Ryder Cup team to miss a shot, or one of our own players during a ner- normal tournament, Patrick, you know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to yell anything to have them miss a shot. I don't want my big mouth to have anything to do with their performance. I let karma work for or against players, which leads me to Phil. I am a Phil fan. I like the way he thinks through his pre-shots. I like the way he works with his caddies. I like the way he worked with Bones before and his little brother now. 
I like his total golf knowledge. His short game is in a league of its own. And at 50, he's still hitting bombs. And his social media presence is goofy. It's funny. He's hitting bombs. bombs. Let's all hit bombs. And point the toe, pull the toe. Extend one leg and point the toe, pull the toe. Point and pull. As the putts go down, thumbs are coming up. Someone took a dump. You know, I find it funny that age is just something that announcers like to talk about. You know, they made a huge deal about Phil being the oldest player to win a major championship. And I guess, look, as we get older, we can't do the same things that we used to do. But I think what Phil showed us is with a lot of hard work, and a lot of support. I mean, he's got a great swing coach. He's got a great caddy. His wife was supportive. He had fitness people and dietitians that were help, helping him. And he believed that he could do it. He keeps saying that there shouldn't be any reason this has to be the last tournament that he wins. Now, it's entirely possible that this is his last major. It's entirely possible that this is his last winning tournament on the flat belly tour, not the senior tour. But at the end of the day, I think what he showed us, he lays out this treasure hunt for the fountain of youth. And this is it. Hard work, discipline to fitness, awareness of food and its influence on his performance, dedication to his craft, and surrounding himself with a team of people that believe he can do it. Negative Nellie's have no place in his life or his team, and nor do they have a place in my life. I believe we could manifest our future with positive affirmation backed by hard work. Most negative people that I know call themselves realists because that's what they choose to look at. Therefore, it is. Stop. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Get my pretty name out of your mouth. So one last thing on Phil. He comes into a Kiowa at 300 to 1 odds that he could win. 300 to 1. But here's the thing. They weren't his odds or his team's odds. He believed he could win. He was gaining length. His short game was the same. He was finding this new putting stroke. I mean, he's been working with Andrew Getson, who helped him find his swing plane and flight balls into different prevailing winds. He came into Kiowa prepared to bring his new A-game. And during the course of the week, while others started to doubt themselves, Phil stayed with his mantra, his pre-shot meditation, his committed swing. The two days that I attend in the tournament, you could see and hear people in the crowd yell out whenever Phil had birdied another hole. The crowds continued to gain strength as the weekend progressed. You could hear him coming a half a mile away, particularly after making a birdie, because the crowd noise was Tiger-esque. And what everybody saw on TV on Sunday, on the 18th, after we hit his shot out of the fairway and he had a walk with Kepka through that crowd, was evidence of how people were feeling the whole week about him. Now, it didn't hurt that the CBS broadcast booth kept talking about his fight with Father Time. 
you know, it's almost like the producers in the booth were feeding the announcers lines every five minutes. I mean, they were flabbergasted that the performance of a 50 year old man was that good. I mean, it's never been done before. Here's a newsflash. The new age of pro golfers are smarter, healthier, better trained, better coached, better athletes. They take better care of themselves compared to athletes of the past. And that's not just golf. That's every professional sport. I mean, I'm a Tom Brady fan. This guy can continue to do it in his 40s, and he's playing against guys that want to knock his block off. Phil opened the lid on Pandora's box of senior celebration. I'm counting on future generations to learn life's lessons sooner and keep pushing high performance into later years. The record that Julius Burroughs held of winning a major at 48 years and four months took 53 years for Phil to beat. And I don't think it's going to take another 53 years to break Phil's record. I mean, Phil did it at 50 years, 11 months, and eight days. Shit, that's almost 51 years old. He might be able to break his own record. If not for Brooks Kepka trying to stop him. Which reminds me of a line I just heard the other day. What is the most expensive wine in South Carolina? Yeah, it would have been cool if I didn't have a knee injury and got dinged a few times in the knee in that crowd um, because no one really gave a shit, personally. This is right after winning $1,056,000. Hey, Brooks, that was a pussy move, buddy. Most other golfers would go through that crowd, and if they were winning, they'd feel great about it. The fact that you were behind and you couldn't make the shots you wanted to make— now you're going to blame it on the crowds being mean to you and, you know, and, and suggesting that somebody was trying to take your knee out. Come on, buddy. Come on. You're better than that. You've been listening to an episode of Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.